Well, Exodus 16, many of you know we've been going through kind of a series within a series in the book of Exodus. We're, we're calling it Who is God? And we're looking at these beautiful chapters in between where God delivers the nation of Israel out of Egypt and before they get to Mount Sinai and receive the law, the Ten Commandments, and the entirety of what is called the Law of Moses. There's these beautiful chapters where six events and a song take place. And it's all about God saying, I want you to know me. I am knowable. I'm revealing who I am. I'm answering the question. You want to know who is God? I'm going to show you who I am. And so it's just been beautiful. It's been beautiful with every stop as God takes the scenic route to get the people to Mount Sinai. It's with a purpose. I don't know how you feel about taking the scenic route. I'm not a big fan of the scenic route. We just finished a road trip. And, and I'm not, I, I don't need to see every historical site. I don't need to stop at every rest area. I don't care what's in every gift shop, right? I want to get there. My wife over here, she's like, I like the scenic route. I like the experience. I'm like, we'll look around when we get there. Let's just get there as quickly and as safely as we can. And then we'll enjoy ourselves. But it's been amazing that God, you know what? He likes the scenic route too. There has been a quicker and a faster way to get the nation of Israel to Mount Sinai, to get the nation of Israel to the promised land, but he's taking the scenic route because he wants to show them who he is. And so we've tried to slow things down a little bit here in the book of Exodus to try and capture some of those things. We saw in our first week, the Red Sea crossing, God shows them, you just, you need to stand still and know I am your salvation. I will fight for you. We parted the Red Sea. Then, then we, we talked last week when, with March was sharing with us how we went to the bitter waters, that he's able to make bitter things sweet. He's able to redeem those situations. He says, I am the God who heals. And now we're going to find another destination where the children of Israel are going to be led to. But I want you to remember contextually, chapter 15 ends with the children of Israel at a place called Elam. And you remember Elam? It was like a super delightful place, a place that we're like, I could stay there for a while, right? There's 12 wells of water. There's 70 palm trees. It's like, pass the umbrella drink. This is a beautiful place to stay. But you know what happens is the cloud representing God's presence, guiding and leading them starts to move, which means it's time to pack things up. We're leaving Elam. Because where God goes, we follow. And so they're going to have to pack up, but where God is going to lead them may surprise you. It kind of surprises the children of Israel. So let's find out. We're going to just look at verse 1 and move a little slower in the text this morning. But chapter 16, verse 1 says this. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So again, picture this. You're hanging out at the oasis in Elam and now it comes time to move. And so you're following God's presence and you're kind of like, well, maybe it gets even better than this. Maybe there'll be 24 springs of water and 140 palm springs. Maybe it's going to be even better, right? But what happens is they're going to find themselves in a dry and desert wasteland of a place in between that oasis and the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Now notice it's a place called the wilderness of sin. Read your Bibles. I am I'm not making this up. It's called the wilderness of sin. This seems like a place that is right out of the Pilgrim's Progress book, one of these destinations that is just right along the walk of the Christian life. And Asher, I just sent you that book. Read it. It's really, really good. But yes, okay, you're right. This sin, the wilderness of sin, okay, it's not the same word for sin that we have in our English Bibles. It's not hamartia. It doesn't mean that they miss the mark or it doesn't mean that they're being disobedient to God's will. But listen, that doesn't deter me at all. We're going to make several applications and spiritual connections about what happens to Israel when they are in the wilderness of sin. And just like it is for us as we walk through this wilderness of sin. So I want you to pay attention to that. We're going to see some of those things. We can all relate 
to what it's like sometimes feeling like we're in a wilderness, we're in a dry and desolate place. This place is just full of sin, temptations to sin, people engaged in sin all around us. That's our culture. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see four responses. Four responses from Israel. What do they do? How do they respond when they're in the wilderness of sin? We're going to count four. And then I want you to hold on because we're going to close our story with, or close our study this morning with the four responses from God. How does God respond when we're in the wilderness of sin? So two sets of four, hold on to some of those things. What I want us to see is this is just another stop on their journey. The wilderness of sin, like the, the place, the, the oasis at Elam, it was just temporary. It's not the promised land yet. It's just something that they need to pass through. Now, the other thing I want to point out here in this first verse that I think is important to our study to understanding is I want you to put in the margin, if you write in your Bibles, put 30 days. 30 days, that's all that has passed. We see that they are in the 15th day of the second month. That's where they find themselves in the wilderness of sin. It's been 30 days. We know they left on the 14th day of the first month, the night of Passover. And now 30 days later, they're in this place. But I point that out because we're going to see God is gracious and he is patient and he is long-suffering with these people who've only been walking with him for one month right? Remember to the early days of your Christianity. Remember some of you, I was saved out of a crazy lifestyle. And, and 30 days later, I'm a baby Christian. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm still making all sorts of mistakes. I still need God's grace as much today as I did then, but I'm, I wasn't walking in the same kind of maturity, nor was God expecting me to 30 days in right? So he's giving them patience. I want you to consider these people have only been walking with the Lord for 30 days. So he's going to give them grace and he's going to deal with, that's part of why he's doing what he's doing in this who is God situation to show them who he is. So keep that in mind. I think that's important. Why do I give such a disclaimer? Well, here's why. Look at verse two. 30 days later, the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's, that's why the disclaimer was needed, right? That's a crazy circumstance where we see where they're at. But I want you to see what's happening in the wilderness of sin. We're seeing the people are struggling. In fact, they're complaining about their situation. Think about this. It says the whole congregation starts complaining to Moses and Aaron. That's two plus million people complaining, sending emails and text messages and tweets and personal messages and TikToks and whatever else needs to go on to let them know their phones are blowing up. How can we keep up with two plus million complaints? I can only imagine what that was like. But what are they complaining about? What's the issue this time? Not bitter waters, not the sea, the impassable sea, but we see they're hungry. They're just hungry. Now, before you think that they're near death starving, it kind of seems like that by their complaint. I want you to know it's not like they don't have any food. We'll see in the next chapter, they still have all their livestock, which is a whole lot of livestock, which means they have milk, they have cheese, they can make cheese. If it really came down to it, they could kill the livestock and eat some meat, right? It's not like they don't have any food. It's not like they're near death starving, not to mention, come on, it's only been 30 days since you saw what God did through his mighty outstretched hand in Egypt. It's been less than that since you watched him part the Red Sea. He just made the bitter water sweet. You're thinking, really? Now he's going to abandon you and you're going to die of starvation in the desert? How fickle can you be? Listen, Christians, how fickle can we be? Can't we say the same things? Last week was awesome. Right now, today, in the past hour, it's kind of been a bummer. I think God doesn't love me. Don't we do the same thing? It's like, what? How dramatic is that? But yet here's the Bible telling us that's exactly what happened with these people after they had seen incredible things. They're thinking, this must be it. Well, I want you to hear this. What this is, is this is just the wilderness of sin. That's the wilderness of sin. It's a desert place. It's a trial. It's a test. It's a challenge. And Christians, we face them. We go through them. 
That's normal. That's par for the course. That's walking with Jesus. That's just the way it is. But we need to understand this. Just because our circumstances change, God never does. He never changes. Volcom, I'm a big fan of Volcom. As you know, Volcom's wrong. The only constant is not change. The only constant is God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So don't think that just as the tides of this world and the winds and the waves and all the crazy things, because they change so quickly, God is not like that. God is permanent and eternal and unchanging. The all existing one, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is one of the things he's going to teach his people through this next experience that he can be counted on. He is eternally faithful. But some of us, that's what we experience first when we go through this wilderness of sin. We're like, ah, things aren't as comfortable as they once were. I really liked the oasis at Elam when I was sitting back just enjoying myself. Listen, that's not the way the Christian life is supposed to go. I love the oasis. Don't get me wrong. God will give us oasis when we need them, times of rest. But we're also called to go into this world as salt and as light, on mission with Jesus, seeking to save the lost, as ambassadors of Christ, which puts us on a collision course in the wilderness of sin with, you know what? Sin, temptation to sin, discomfort, times when we have to walk by faith and not by sight, time when we have to crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit. And so that's all that's happening here, but we just need to understand this is just the facts. Just as gold is tested by fire, our faith is tested by adversity. That's how it goes. Listen to this. Good timber does not grow in ease. The stronger the wind, the tougher the trees. By sun and cold, by rain and snows, in tree or in man, that is just how good timber grows. And that's what God is doing in us, conforming us into the image of Christ. And even Jesus, the son, learned through, learned obedience through suffering. We're no different, right? He tells us, don't look at me as your master and think you as my servants are greater than me. What I experienced, you're going to experience. So just understand, that's the wilderness of sin. He told us this beforehand. So what's the real issue here? Listen, it's not that they don't have any food. It's that they don't have the food they want to eat. That's the real issue. Have you ever, are you in one of those families where you can be sitting there and you can watch, you know, maybe a child, maybe a spouse, but walk up to the pantry that you know has a ton of food in it. But the person walks up to the pantry, they swing open the doors and they go, ah, there's nothing to eat in here. And you're like, there's tons of stuff to eat in there. But what they're saying is what I want to eat isn't in there, right? What I want to eat, we don't have. And that's the mistake we as Christians can make sometimes. Thinking our greed's, our needs. And that's what's happening here with the children of Israel. Look at this verse. This is Psalm 78, verse 18, our first reference verse today. It says this, they, the people here in Exodus 16, they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Did you catch that? They're like, we're craving this food, so we should have it. The whole complaint starts because they're craving something they don't currently have. And that's just, that's where James tells us, that's where it begins. Temptation just begins. This opportunity, I'm just craving something. I'm longing for something that I don't have, that I really want to have. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start complaining about it. So that's our first response that we see. First of four responses that we see from the people. The first thing they do is they complain. They complain to the Lord. And we need to understand what complaining is. Simply complaining is expressing discontent. It's saying, I don't like this. This is causing me discomfort, and I don't like that, so I'm going to complain about it. I'm going to make sure everyone around me knows just how discontent I am until it spreads to two plus million people, the whole congregation. Now, just for the record, I want you to know this, just for the record, because of everything that's going on around us, I'm not saying that that being a part of a peaceful protest, standing with the Lord and upon the truth of God to express where God stands on an issue against injustice or against some of these things that are just not biblical. They're not true. They're not God's heart. It's okay for a Christian to be a part of a peaceful protest, passionately sharing their convictions in love. I'm not saying that's complaining. Sometimes it can be, but I'm not saying it always is. So just know that. But listen, here in context of Exodus chapter 16, they are complaining. 
And what they're doing here is not good. What they're doing here is expressing discontent and ultimately it's expressing discontent against God. We need to understand that. Christians, sometimes we can make more situations than not when we complain When we say, God, I don't like my lot in life. When we say, God, I don't like what is happening. He who is Lord and leading us, sometimes we're saying, God, I am discontent with you. I'm upset with the way you're leading my life. I'm upset with the way you're not doing something you could be doing or you're allowing something that I don't want you to allow. I'm upset where I'm in the wilderness of sin. I'm upset I don't have the food that I crave. And it can start to begin this downward downward spiral of discontentment that is very, very dangerous. But when you put it like that, when you think that that the people are complaining and showing discontentment towards God, they're, they're kind of saying, God, I could do better. And when you put complaining in that kind of light, and listen, the Bible has a lot to say to the Christian about complaining. I put several verses in your study guide, by the way. But when you start to see that, you say, I, I don't want to complain. I don't want to complain against God who's been so good to me. I don't want to complain about God. Even when I don't understand what's going on, I still know he's good. I still know what he's done. I still know what his word declares about him. But that's what they're doing is they're complaining. That's what happens first in this wilderness of sin. Now, what happens next? The, the first, the people complain. Number two, response number two, notice that they look for someone to blame, right? What do they do? They blame Moses and Aaron. And I want you to think complaining is like filing a formal complaint against the people you think are in control. So in this context, they file a direct complaint towards Moses and Aaron who they feel have the power to change their circumstances. And so they're complaining about their leadership. They're expressing discontent towards their leadership. But here's the catch. Moses and Aaron are not the leaders, right? They're servants of the Lord. They're just instruments of the Lord. God's the one in charge. God's the leader. God's the one who's part of the Red Sea. It's been his, his outstretched hand. Moses has been quick to point out, no, no, it's the Lord. Don't look at me. It's the Lord. But the people are complaining. They don't even know it yet, but they're expressing discontentment towards the Lord. They're, they're saying, it's your fault. We're hungry. It's your fault. We left Egypt. If it wasn't for them, Moses and Aaron, we wouldn't be in this situation. But I want you to catch that they're shifting blame. If we live lives continuing to shift blame, looking for someone to blame, you know what happens? We always remain the same. We never take accountability for what we have in in the equation. We never take accountability to come right before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you say? I think about the peaceful protest, and I think there's a time and a place for that. There is. But make sure you're first peacefully protesting in prayer to the Lord, coming to the one who is the blessed controller of all things, to the one who can and has changed this world and hearts one heart at a time but they're shifting the blame and they're ultimately saying, God, again, they don't even know it yet. We'll see later in the text. They're saying, God, you're to blame for this. You have evil motives in this. And we say, what? No, God doesn't. God never makes a mistake. God does not have evil motives, which means who's really behind this? Who wants us to blame God, the enemy of our souls? But I want you to see that's the way it's always been. Go back to when sin entered into this world. Go back to Genesis chapter three. What did Adam say? He said, "Uh, Lord, it's the woman you gave me. You know what he just did? He just blamed God for his sin. What did Eve say? Uh, It was the serpent, right? The serpent you created. she, She blames God. If we shift blame, we're blaming God for our situation. That's what complaining does. It shifts and makes a formal complaint saying, God, I don't believe you're all that good. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to complain. I don't ever want to, to adhere or attach a characteristic towards God that just isn't ever true. He's eternally faithful. He is good. He's loving. He's gracious. He's merciful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in the moment, through this progression, in the wilderness of sin, we can see that's what's happening here amongst the people. And as we kind of zoom out a little bit and we, we try to apply this to our own lives, we need to understand that in the wilderness of sin, we're going to have difficulties, We will face adversity, but those difficulties are not to make us bitter. They're to make us better. They're to shape us and conform us more into the image of Jesus. They're not to have a shift blame against what God is doing. They're to get us to seek him more for his solution to the situation. They're they're adversity that gets allowed into our lives not to break us, but to shape us more into the image of Jesus. It's been well said to swear is a sin because it's using God's name in vain. But listen, to complain 
is sin because it's taking God's promises in vain. God promises abundant life, but I don't feel like I'm living abundant life, so it must not be true. That's taking God's promises and making them vain. None of God's promises are vain. Everything that the Lord God has spoken, it will all come to pass. Not a single thing the Lord has promised will fail to come to pass. So don't take his promises in vain, even when you feel like your circumstances don't reflect what the final end is going to be. Remember that it's temporary. This isn't the final, this isn't the final destination. We're just passing through. We're sojourners here. But that's what happens. The people complain. Then they look for someone to blame. What happens next? Number three, they lose their aim. They completely lose their focus of where they're going. This wilderness of sin is just something they're passing through. It's not the final destination, but it's the path they're going to get to the right destination because why? God is leading them there. But what happens is they lose their aim. They lose their entire focus about what is going on. And what complaining can be is complaining can turn into a campsite. I want you to know that in, in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew language that the book of Exodus is written, the word that is used for complaining in verse 2, it can also be translated. It is translated elsewhere in the Bible as a place to dwell, a place to remain for a time. Complaining becomes a campsite. It becomes the place where I camp out. And now I started just complaining. I was just craving something. But now I'm blaming God for not being good. And now I'm just camping out here. You know what? Everything isn't good because complaining is a campsite and when you start to have that perspective and you start to go down that train you know what you do you're painting the walls of your life with negativity and pessimism you're saying the glass is always half empty evil is always going to abound things are chaos and they're only going to get worse and you're just painting the walls of your house creating a campsite of negativity and pessimism. And listen, that is not how a Christian is supposed to live. That is not to be our mindset. Christians, you and I, in Christ, the glass is always half full. And he has the ability to overflow our cup past the brim daily, moment by moment. We are not to live in a campsite of negativity and complaining and pessimism. That is not what Jesus won for us. I want you to think about where we are. We sit in Christ. We are seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. Where does he sit? At the right hand of the Father. You know what that means? Things, if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, if we don't lose our aim, things are always looking up. Always, always, always looking up when we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. It's not full of negativity. Some of us, we know pessimistic people. We know all the negativity. And I think we can look at their lives and say, that's no way to live. I don't want to live my life camping out in negativity. I want to keep my eyes fixed upon Jesus, hoping all things, believing all things, enduring all things, because he has. He has. He's done all of those things for us, and we can be overcomers in him. So our contentment, Listen, our contentment is never in our current situation. Our contentment is in our permanent position. Did you catch that? Our contentment is not in our current situation. Our contentment is in our permanent position. And where is that permanent position? In Christ. Where's my joy? In Christ. Where's my hope? In Christ. Where's my peace? Where's my salvation? Where's my joy? It's in Christ. It's all in Christ. All things that pertain to life and godliness have been given to me in Christ. So sometimes when we find ourselves in the complaining, in the negativity, it's because we too have lost our aim. And we think our hope and our joy and our peace and our contentment, it's in something else. Listen, it's not. If it is, that's a moving target. That is a futile pursuit. We will never attain contentment that way. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. One of my favorite verses, one of my favorite truths. This is our next reference verse, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. The Apostle Paul says, Not that I speak in regard to need, but he says, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how it is to be abased. That means I know how it is to be humiliated. I know how it is to be, to be without anything. And I know how it is to abound, to have everything. But he says, everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to 
abound and to suffer need. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What Paul is teaching us right here in Philippians chapter four is contentment is not circumstantial. Contentment is not ever in our current situation, right? He says, it doesn't matter whether I have a bunch or I have nothing. It doesn't matter if I'm suffering need or I'm being exalted. My contentment isn't in any of those things. My contentment is Christ. Contentment is Christ. Contentment is who I am in Christ. And we know we can live like this because Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And right, we love that verse, right? We've got shoes that have that verse on it. We've got coffee mugs that have that verse on it. That verse is on our walls and in our bathrooms. But listen, contextually, it has to do with contentment. I can be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ is my contentment. Apply it contextually, and that is what Paul is telling us. Now, I want you to catch two different times in the verses that we just read. He says, I have learned. I had to learn this. Contentment is not a spiritual gift. Contentment is not a fruit of the Spirit. Contentment is something we have to learn by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, by keeping our eyes heavenward, by trusting him and believing him and and abiding in him. So notice how powerful that is. That's the opposite of what is happening here in Exodus chapter 16. They think their whole contentment is just getting some food. So they complain, they look for someone to blame, they lose their aim. What should they have done? They should have just prayed. Think if they would have just come to the Lord and say, Father, I'm hungry. Father, I'd love some bread. We had bread back in Egypt, but I know what you provide is even better. We're going to see that God knows what he's going to provide. But sometimes you say, God, show me, show me things from your perspective. Show me things from an eternal perspective. I don't understand what's going on. I'm, I'm so confused. I'm hurt. Be honest with the Lord. We can be honest with him. We can bring words to our Father in heaven frustrations, challenges, difficulties, misunderstandings. Read the Psalms. We can bring our hurts to the Lord, but we ought to do it in prayer. Oftentimes we start complaining to the people around us, but if we took those things to the Lord in prayer, Christians, if we prayed more, we would complain less. And when we had things that we did need to speak up, if we spent time in prayer and we grabbed a hold of the Lord's heart and we applied it to his word, then when we shared, it would be life. It would be, it would be solution. It would be remedy. It would be standing upon the truth of God in love. And that's what we want. But it all begins with coming to the Lord, not looking to this world to fulfill some of these different things. So apply some of that. What we see here is, is after the people have, have started to lose their aim, the fourth thing they do to respond is they make a false claim. They start to accuse the Lord making a false claim about his atten- intentions for them. And they do that notice by overly exaggerating their former situation. They say, oh, don't you remember how great it was in Egypt? Don't you remember when we sat by the pots of meat? Don't you remember when we ate bread to the full? Oh, wasn't that satisfying? They're just overly exaggerating what they thought was the good old days. And we're scratching our heads saying, wait a minute, did you forget? Did you forget what it was like to be slaves to Pharaoh? Do you forget what it was like to have your children murdered? Do you forget what it was like to serve in back-breaking ways night in and night day with quotas that you couldn't meet being beaten for, for missing those expectations? Do you forget that? Those were not good old days. But you know what happens is sometimes in the wilderness of sin, Sometimes when we find ourselves walking in difficulty is we start to look back with rose-colored glasses and think that those days were actually good old days. Friends, those were not good old days. Those were just old days and we want to come into the time that was new. We want to come into the beauty of who we are, new creations in Christ. Those were days without God. Those were days of darkness. Those were days without hope and all the other things that come in a relationship with Jesus. Those days were void of those things. So don't overly exaggerate the past when you're in a present difficulty. Understand that this too shall pass as we're passing on as sojourners into a better place following the Lord. But that's what happens. They lose perspective. 
They lose heart. They're grumbling and complaining against God. They're blaming God. That is all part of this danger of discontentment. What's crazy is if we could push pause right here, I'm so glad we didn't, but if we could and say, so wait a minute, are you telling me if you had the choice right now, you'd want to go back and serve Pharaoh? Simply because of the pots and meat and bread of the full, is really that the issue? It sure seems like if we ask that question, the vast majority of these people would say, yeah, I'll go back. I'll go back and endure all those other things, bondage, slavery, oppression, if I can just have some food. And don't, don't we say that? We say, how crazy is that? Do we think about selling out sometimes for a bowl of soup? Is, is anyone ever in the Bible sold out on a bowl of soup over just physical comforts? Speaking of Esau, by the way, but that's, that's crazy to think about, but it happens. But it happens when we are focused upon the wrong things, when we have lost our aim and we're making false claims, misunderstanding who God really is. Jesus speaks to this very clearly. I'm going to reference this a couple different times, but in John chapter 6, I'll show the verse in a minute, Charlie, but remember, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He's going to use five loaves of bread and two fish, and he's going to feed 5,000 men, right? That's not even talking about the women and the children that are there. So so probably 10,000 people, he's going to feed them fish, tacos, until they are stuffed. They, they can't eat another morsel. And then there's going to be 12 baskets left over. God is going to provide for them. But if you remember what happens next, and you know, there's a lot that happens next, but I'm, I'm moving into the very next day after that happens. Jesus and his disciples are on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, the disciples take a boat, Jesus took a walk, but they're on the other side. And all the multitudes of people who were just fed the day before, they walk around to meet Jesus on the other side. They labored, they've walked, they've pursued to find Jesus on the other side. But when Jesus, when they find Jesus, Jesus asks them, what do you want? And he's going to tell them, ultimately what you want is you want more food. You want more bread. You're coming to me because you're hungry again. And there's a case and a point being made there. If you live your life hoping to fill only your physical comforts, you know what you're going to find? You're going to be hungry again and again and again, and those physical things will never be anything more than temporary, right? Not worth pursuing, not let your whole life be worth pursuing, but Jesus speaks into that. Here's the reference verse, John 6, verse 26 and 27. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. I tell you, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. The people in John chapter 6 are making the same mistake in Exodus chapter 6. You know what they want? They want the food that perishes. They are with the Lord, the giver of life, the author and the finisher of faith. And they're leading them to the promise. And what they really want is to go back to a place where they can have a bunch of food, but no life. And Jesus says, don't labor for the food that perishes, labor for the food that leads to eternal life. And we're going to talk more about that as we finish our study a little bit later. But notice they're just longing for the wrong things, complaining for the wrong things, craving the wrong things. All the while, Jesus is stretching out his righteous right hand and saying, come to me, come to me. And God's going to do the same thing in this picture of Exodus chapter 16. But he wants to unwind our thinking here. He wants to unwind some of the things that even we're craving right now. Some of us, our entire pursuits are heading towards things that perish. And they may be great things. Listen to how powerful this statement is. They may be things that can change the world. But if they cannot change your eternity, you're going to perish nonetheless. The things that we do for ourselves, if they're temporary, they're never going to change our eternity. And so what Jesus is teaching them, even what God would speak into these people in Exodus chapter 16, is don't go back to the things that are fleeting and the things that felt good in the moment, but really were death. Walk with me, abide in me, even when it's difficult, even through the wilderness of sin, even when you don't understand it, because I have the words of life. I speak eternal life over you. I will see you through. And we're going to see the way God's going to respond more and more. I'm excited for it. I need to be patient. But look at how practical this is. So many times our instant desires can cloud the big picture. So many times right now can yell so loudly we forget about all of eternity. 
And we can start making decisions in the moment, making false claims like they make. They literally say, you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us as an assembly of hunger. They accuse God of evil motives and evil intentions. That, that's a huge false claim. But don't we feel that way sometimes? Haven't we ever said things like, God, you don't have my best interest in mind. You don't care about me. What, you're doing all these things to make my life miserable? Listen, no. That is not even consistent with the heart of God. Read your Bibles. Get to know who he is. He is consistent. He is faithful. He is true. He is for you. But here in this moment, we can make some of these, these accusations that are just so wrong. But it can also be wrong if our motives and our, our aim is looking at a moving target. Know that our contentment is not a moving target. Our contentment is Christ. So the people forget that. They make false claims. What they say, it's wrong, but it's how they feel. So let's switch some gears here and let's now see how God responds to this. Right, the people have done a whole lot here that you're thinking, how is God going to respond to this? Right, some of us are thinking, I know I'd respond to that. I'm so glad I'm not the Lord. If I was the Lord, there'd be no survivors. But I'm not the Lord. And he is so much greater and so much more patient and so much more loving than I am. And look at how he responds to what the people have just done, even accused him of. Verse four says this, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they gather. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Right? Who did? The Lord did. Verse 7, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we, I love that, not who are we, what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, And in the morning, bread to the full, for the Lord hears your complaints, which you are making against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. These verses are absolutely incredible. These verses are the amazing grace of God responding in a way that is not deserved. That's how God's grace works. It's receiving what I don't deserve. It's unmerited, undeserved favor. What God is going to do for his people, they don't deserve it. But because he loves them, because he's patient and long-suffering, he is going to provide for their every need. But I want to remind you again, we're going to see later in the book of Exodus, Right here, they're 30 days old in a sense, right? They've only been walking with the Lord for 30 days. And so God is showing grace. He is showing patience and long suffering as he bears with the weaknesses of the weak as they just now start to get to know him. But I want you to know, complaining like this is not a pattern we want to follow. There will come a time in years to come where complaining like this will be disciplined a lot more harshly because that is a lack of faith that God does not contend with forever. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear the Lord's voice today, repent. Don't harden your heart as these people are going to do in the wilderness. So don't think this is the pattern. Well, cool, God's okay with me complaining against him. No, he's not. He's gracious and he is long-suffering, but not forever. 
So keep that in mind. Don't contend against the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord. But here he is showing incredible grace, incredible love, and patience. But I want us to see now the four ways God responds. Here's the part where we see, here's here's how God wants to show his people who he is, where he is, and what he's willing to do when they're in the wilderness of sin, when we find ourselves in the wilderness of sin. So response number one, we see God hears. Check that out. Five different times in the verses that we just read, it says, God hears, God hears, God hears. Five times. Now, yes, it's going to say that God hears their complaints, but I'm emphasizing the part where it says God hears. God hears what is coming out of his people's mouths. God is listening. Do you understand that? Sometimes you feel like you're all alone. Sometimes you feel like, nobody's here with me, I'm all alone. I want you to know, the Bible just told you that's not true, God hears. Sometimes it feels like nobody's listening to me. I've got things to say, I've got feelings, I've got things I want to express, but nobody's listening to me. That's not true, the Bible just showed you five times God hears you. God is listening to you. God hears your prayers, God hears your praises, God hears your complaints. But God hears is his response. And you may think, well, that's not really a response. It's totally a response. He's bending his ear to listen to his people. That's incredible that he would hear what his people have to say, what we have to say. Notice that's in direct contrast to all the other false gods and idols in this world. We see, we see different religions. They make these idols. They make these. Egypt did the same thing. And notice they have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they can't see. God says that. I put the verses in your study guide. But the Lord is not like that. He has ears and he hears and he has eyes and he sees and he, had, he has hands and he reaches out and he moves. He's the true and living God. He's active. But hearing is his first response. Being engaged with what is happening with his people is who the Lord is. He is the God who hears. Who is God? He's the God who hears. Response number two is we're seeing God remains near. I love this part. God is right here with them. Where is the Lord when they are in the wilderness of sin? Where is the Lord when we are walking through the wilderness of sin? He is right there with us. He remains near. He's with his people. He didn't send them out all on their own. He doesn't send us out on our own. He goes before us and he abides with us as we abide with him. It's beautiful. But I want us to see this even before the Lord addresses their physical needs by providing for them supernaturally. Moses and Aaron command the people in verse nine to come before the Lord. Don't you love that invitation? Come before the Lord. The the invitation is still today. Come to the Lord. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to the Lord and he will give you rest for your souls. All you who thirst, all you hunger, come to the Lord. The invitation is come. Jesus says come. And he's inviting them here, but they're gonna come here in verse nine. But notice in verse 10, it says they look to the wilderness, right? It doesn't say they have to look back to Egypt and see where the Lord is. It doesn't say they have to look to heaven and see where the Lord is. It doesn't say they have to look to Mount Sinai. They look right where they are at, in the wilderness. Where's God? With them, near them. And then he's going to show his glory through this cloud. This is something different. This is something more full than what has just been the pillar of cloud by night and the, or the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. It says the glory of God fills this cloud. This is the Shekinah glory of God, his off-shining, the radiant majesty of him living and dwelling in unapproachable light is shining through this cloud. And the people say, the Lord is there. The Lord is near. I want you to know the Lord is near. He's nearer than you think. He dwells inside of you, Christian. He takes up residence in your life as the very temple of his glory, of his Holy Spirit. And so when we think about where we're walking, God is near us. This this beats my heart. Because it can feel like we're walking through the shadow of death sometimes, doesn't it? It can feel like we are going through some of the hardest times, walking through the fire, walking through the storms, traversing through the wilderness of sin. But we are never alone. God walks with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So God responds by showing them he's near Response number three from the Lord, what does he do? He says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. I will rain it down, which shows God provides in abundance. 
Not just mere, okay, I'm running out of some rhymes here, but not just merely, right? He says, I'm going to provide in abundance. I'm going to rain down bread for you. In his incredible grace, out of his abundant mercy, notice he gives the people the desires of their heart. They ask through complaining. They ask through blaming. They ask without a lack of focus. They ask in an accusatory way. And yet God in his grace still gives them the desires of his heart, meat in the form of quail that will come in the evening. God will just cover the camp with quail. Delicious little birds, quail nuggets for all my friends is going to be provided for the people. And then in the morning, what is truly supernatural is manna from heaven. But notice, bread that the people can gather every single day, six days a week, and then church, listen to this, twice it says they can eat to the full. Verse 8, God will give you bread to the full. Verse 12, you shall be filled with bread. And I point that out because they were longing to go back to Egypt where they could eat meat and they could eat bread to the full. And what God is saying is don't look to the world to be satisfied in your fulfillment. That's temporary. But if you stay with me and you abide with me, I will give you what you need to the full, the same capacity, only this time it's gonna be authentic. Only this time it's gonna be the bread from heaven, the bread that gives us life. I think that's beautiful in a contrast of what the Lord's going to provide abundantly for his people. Now I want you to see just practically, I wanna make a quick Christ connection here. Because it's showing us right after verse 12, it says, you will be filled with bread. And then he says, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. So what God is setting up, he says, through the providing of bread, bread from heaven, that is how you're going to know I am the Lord, your God. God reveals himself through the provision of bread. Moving back to John chapter six, what we were talking about earlier, continuing after Jesus feeds the 5,000, after he tells them, don't labor for food that perishes, but labor for food that, that, it, that leads to eternal life. He's going to, to continue to have this dialogue and the people are gonna say, well, well, we want this bread. Well, what is this bread that leads to eternal life? What is the work we must do? And Jesus says, believe in me. Believe in the one whom God has sent. Put your faith in Jesus. Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Trust me. And they say, well, well, okay, we want to do that. So, so, so how do we do that? And, and they, they actually repeat to Jesus, well, well, if we trust you, wait a minute, your fa- our fathers received bread from heaven in the form of manna, repeating this exact miracle that we're going to see is going to last for 40 years until the people get into the promised land and eat the produce. So Jesus responds, my father gives you the true bread from heaven, which is he who comes down to give life to this world. And they're like, well, that sounds better than manna. We want that. Where do we get that? Jesus looks right back at them and says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says that he takes what is pictured here as manna, bread from heaven, that which is revealing that God is the Lord. And he says, what that was was just a shadow, a picture, a type of who I am. I am the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. And Jesus says, he who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. What I offer is eternally satisfying, not something that you need to do again and again and again and again. You come to me and be filled. That's what he promises. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the Christ connection. Just like we're seeing here, Jesus says, I'm fulfilling that. But by the end of verse 12, that's what he's pointing out. The same God who revealed himself to his people in Exodus chapter 16 is the same God, Emmanuel, Jesus coming the likeness of men and revealing that he is the bread of life. Beautiful, undeniable as we make some of these connections. So God provides abundantly, not mere. Response number four, God is going to tell the people, I am your daily bread. Let me steer. Let me lead you. Let me steer your life. Let me provide for you. Don't overly exaggerate what you once had. Let me steer your life now and let me show you what I'm able to give you today. But I want you to catch a couple things here. Every single morning, six days a week, they're gonna be able to get as much manna, bread from heaven as they need. We'll talk more about this in a couple weeks and what happens on the seventh day. It's beautiful. It needed a Sunday all by itself. 
But I want you to see, even those who gathered a lot, they're not going to have anything left over. Those who gathered a little, they're not going to have any lack. It's going to be a perfect provision for the one who goes and partakes of it. But I want you to know it's not far away. It's not like you got to climb this mountain and you got to scale that cliff and then you can get your bread from life, right? No, it's right there. It's out there. You got to get out of your tent and you got to go get it. But salvation is right there. It's in Jesus' name. The bar of salvation is low, John Simpson loves to say, and I believe it. It's true. But it's there. You, go to, you just go grab it. I want to believe in him who, who God said. I want to believe in Jesus. But I want you to notice here that the catch is that they can only gather what is needed for that day. We're talking again more about this in a minute, but if, or in a couple weeks, but when you grab this, this man, if you think, man, I, I don't really want to go shopping every day. What I'd really like is just like a Costco mana bulk trip. You know, I just want to get as much mana I can for the whole month. I want to do my shopping once a day. What you're going to find is, if it's not the Sabbath, what you find is any bread that is held over for the next day is going to stink and it's going to have worms and it's going to be moldy and nasty and you're not going to want that anywhere near you. And you're kind of like, why? What is God setting up there? Why does he do that? What is God revealing about himself? And he's revealing that I am your daily bread. That I want you to depend upon me daily. What happened here? 30 days later, they're like, ah, is the Lord really dependable? He says, I want to set something up for me. or I want to set something up so you can see that I am dependable every single day. Seek today your daily bread. Receive today your daily bread. Tomorrow, depend on me again. I'm going to provide it again. Trust me because I promised I'm faithful. But every single day, that's how we walk through the wilderness of sin. That's how we get through some of these situations that feel so chaotic. We receive our daily bread daily. Sometimes we think, well, I went to church on Sunday and so I'm hoping that carries me into Monday. And listen, I hope it does. I hope your Sundays change your Mondays. But that doesn't replace your need for daily bread on Monday and Tuesday and a new washing of the word on Wednesday. It's a daily bread. Moses is going to take this and apply this to the very, the very great application that we see Jesus reference. So last reference verse is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Moses speaking, he says, So he, God, humbled you allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need physical sustenance. We need spiritual sustenance. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Jesus uses that when he quotes it in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan himself. No, I don't need to turn these stones into bread because man does not live on physical things alone. We live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. That's what we need to do. God is our daily bread. Let him steer. Let him lead your life. Let him guide you. Moses makes the connection. But he's kind of saying, in essence, you could go back to Egypt and eat what you fill, but you don't have the Lord there. You don't have the word of God there, which means you're not going to live there anyway. Don't think you're going to live on a worldly diet and feed your spiritual health. That's just not the way it works, Christian. We need to have physical things to fuel our physical bodies. We need spiritual food to to feed our spiritual lives. Man does not live by bread alone. Lock that in. But as we look at this kind of big picture and start to close this down and prepare our hearts for communion, look at kind of the big picture here. Why leave the oasis at Elam to travel into the wilderness of sin at all? To see and learn all that. That's what God does. There are so many circumstances that we go through that are hard, but those are the moments that we learn more about the Lord than we do when everything's all nice and cozy and retreat-like in Oasis. That's what God does. So just lock some of these things in. The people complain, they look for someone to blame, they lose their aim, and they make false claims, but God responds with power and authority, and he says, I want you to know I am the God who hears. I'm the God who is with you, I remain near. I will provide for you abundantly, not mere. I am your daily bread. Let me steer continue to abide in the Lord in this time of uncertainty. Continue to let his word be true and everything else the lie. Speak life. Be the ambassador. Aim heavenward. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's either going to come or this is going to pass. But things are always looking up to the one who's anchored heavenward.